0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Bringing Hip-Hop to Denver Teens by Frank D'Age- D'Angeli. From Denver Denverite, I'll be reading Triangle Bar on Broadway Closes Indefinitely As Owners Blame Encampments by Matt Bloom. And A Trip to Denver's Dump Inspired a Book About Humanity's Stuff by Kevin Beatty. From Westward, I'll be reading Overland Becomes Latest Denver Neighborhood to Push Back on Homeless micro by Benito L. Kelty, and DIA acknowledges travel woes, adjusts for the future, by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Bringing Hip-Hop to Denver Teens, by Frank D'Angeli. Oren Bregman's confidence can be felt through the phone. His charisma and laid-back energy create an air of familiarity, almost like we've spoken before. We have not. While I record our call on my ancient microphone and bootlegged audio software, our conversation flows smoothly from music to life and back. Bregman has reason enough to be self-assured. Since his teenage years, he's been making significant achievements in the world of hip-hop, signing to Detroit-based label Trackside at 19. His band, Coast to Ghost, long buzzing in the Denver area, is headed to Detroit this fall to record their second album. Bregman lives and breathes music, and more recently he's found a way to bring his passion to use in the Denver area. Mobile Studio, a nonprofit organization founded, owned, and operated by Bregman, has been making a concerted effort to give teens access to the world of music production. The concept is pretty straightforward. Bregman drives a large van full of instruments, microphones, and computers to meet kids where they are. And Bregman teaches those kids about almost any musical concept they're interested in. This includes lyricism, vocalization, instrumentation, and recording. Participants are given opportunities to perform their music live or release their songs on streaming platforms, and many branch out from the program to make music on their own. Bregman came up with the idea for Mobile Studio through unrelated nonprofit work in Northeast Denver schools. Some of the kids we worked with out there were tremendously talented, Bregman said. I thought, wow, what a shame that they really don't have musical resources or access to a studio. Somebody should really be bringing the studio to them. With years of experience in hip hop production, Mobile Studio seemed like a no-brainer for Bregman. According to Bregman, the cost barrier to music production is real, with many projects requiring a computer, microphone, and expensive software to get started. But in Bregman's experience, this is a kind of music through which kids prefer to express themselves. Being able to make music, specifically hip-hop and rap, is so refreshing to them, Bregman said. They don't want to play the trombone, they want to do this. According to Bregman, outside of the cost of equipment, hip-hop can be an easily accessible art form. You don't need classical training, you don't need a grand piano or a teacher, Bregman said. If you know how to count the beat, you can teach yourself. He also noted how hip-hop, a historically black art form, can be an empowering form of self-expression for the teens he works with, many of whom are black or Latino. Bregman recalled being moved by a song that one of his pupils wrote about the Black Lives Matter movement, calling this a magical moment to witness. According to Bregman, the genre itself innately draws passion and truth from its creators. It gives students an outlet to speak out loud on things that are personal to them, to let their voices be heard through an exciting musical platform. He also said that hip-hop's historically supportive culture allows this free expression in a tolerant environment. Bregman said his favorite part of the job is witnessing the kids he works with discover their passions for music. For me, a milestone is the first time somebody creates their own song and hears it and thinks, Wow, that's me, Bregman said. He works to foster the creativity, leadership, and communication that students find through collaboration with one another. Over time, you just see their confidence grow. They know how to record. They know how to make music collaboratively, which is really impressive, he said. According to Bregman, when it comes to the future of mobile studio, he's thinking big. Getting more equipment, going to more schools, maybe we'll get another vehicle. As a longtime sole employee, he's also looking to bring more staff aboard. Bregman said, I've been doing this myself for a couple years now, and although it's been really successful, hiring would be the next step. Mobile Studio is currently in the process of revamping its website and social media profiles, and Bregman said he plans to capitalize on the momentum that Mobile Studio has generated so far. Who knows? Maybe one day you'll see Mobile Studio all over the country. These next two articles are from Denverite. Triangle Bar on Broadway closes indefinitely as owners blame encampments by Matt Bloom. The owners of Triangle Bar Denver, one of the city's oldest LGBTQ bars, abruptly closed their doors on Thursday. Visitation had dwindled in recent months, owners said in a written message sent to patrons. Management blamed nearby encampments of unhoused people as the main driver. We confirmed that 75% of you are visiting us less frequently, with over 60% citing safety concerns due to the encampments, owners wrote. We've been injecting funds regularly into the bar just to keep the doors open while pressuring the city to take corrective action. The closure marks the end of another chapter for the storied bar that opened in the late 70s. It gained popularity among the city's leather and kink scene and served as a safe space during the height of the AIDS crisis, said Sean O'Grady, a previous co-owner. It was a wild place, O'Grady added, and I think it was one of the few bars that actually cared about being part of the community and being there for them. The original business shuttered in the late 2000s, after the then-owner died. Ownership changed hands a few times since then. In 2017, a team of business partners, including billionaire Scott Coors of Coors Brewing, purchased the space and reopened it as an LGBTQ bar and restaurant. The revived space hosted a mix of parties, performances, charity events, and brunches featuring elevated food, O'Grady said. Events like its annual Pride block party and weekly beer busts drew large crowds. But the COVID-19 pandemic cut its momentum. The business took a hit from coronavirus closures and restrictions in 2020, and the bar struggled to become profitable after that. It did not break even for sure after that said O'Grady, who left the ownership team in 2022. But many bars and restaurants are coming back to 2019 levels now. Its location, 2036 North Broadway, is near several organizations that provide services to unhoused residents downtown. Encampments have lined the streets near the bar for years. Their populations grew significantly in recent months, said Coors, one of the owners, Staff frequently witnessed drug use, human waste deposits, and violence nearby, he said. It was a mess, Coors said, and our customers didn't want to walk through it. Coors and other owners requested extra assistance from the city months ago, but struggled to get a response, he said. The city conducted a sweep on September 27th, but the camps returned shortly after that. Mayor Hancock did nothing to address the problem, and the new mayor came in on all these promises of doing it, did one sweep finally after we begged them for two months, and then turned their back on it the next day, Coors said. Mayor Mike Johnston's office said in a statement that teams from the administration met with the owners of the triangle to listen to concerns and were working to find housing for residents of nearby encampments before the closure announcement. Addressing homelessness has been a key issue for the new administration. Johnston declared a state of emergency around the issue and pledged to get 1,000 people off the streets and into housing by the end of the year. Since then, the administration has conducted several large sweeps. While we acknowledge the progress made so far, we also understand the urgency of the situation and are fully aware of the challenges we face in meeting our ambitious goal, a spokesman for Johnston said in a statement. On Thursday, the day of Triangle's closure announcement, the large encampments around the bar had disappeared. The mayor's office did not comment on whether an official sweep took place or what drove the change. Coor said he believed another sweep took place, but he was not optimistic the encampment would stay gone. Past managers said the bar's closure was likely tied to more than just unhoused people living nearby. COVID-19 recovery was slow, and the bar's distant location from other LGBTQ community spaces didn't help, said O'Grady, one of the former co-owners. I think that 95% of unhoused neighbors over there were harmless, and they're just trying to live their lives, he said. There are unhoused people on Colfax. There are unhoused people in Lodo. There are unhoused people everywhere, and other places are thriving again. Other downtown businesses have seen a slow recovery from COVID-19. Foot traffic dropped sharply in 2020, but bounced back to pre-pandemic levels for the first time this summer, according to research from the Downtown Denver Partnership. Downtown Denver's overall pedestrian traffic in July of 2023 was 91% of the overall pedestrian traffic in July of 2019, but the resurgent has been concentrated in a few areas, Said Britt Deal with DDP. It tends to be concentrated on the 16th Street Mall and near anchors like Union Station and the Performing Arts Complex, Deal said. Triangle Bar does kind of sit on an island that's not super walkable. Triangle's closure is one example of how the homelessness crisis is impacting business, said Darrell Watson, city councilman for District 9, which includes Triangle. What we are seeing is a reduction of folks going to businesses that are surrounded by encampments, good, bad, or otherwise. That is a fact, Watson said, adding that he plans to announce new targeted grants to help small businesses in similar situations to Triangle. The city is not leading as we should with finding housing and support for folks living unsheltered, but also making sure our businesses and our residents are able to live and thrive in our city, Watson said. Triangle said its closure would last indefinitely, according to its emailed statement. Event and brunch ticket holders will receive refunds. The bar will host a final beer bust on October 8th, starting at noon. We worked hard to provide a safe and welcoming place for all members of our community to celebrate, play, and give back to others for the last six years, despite some tremendous obstacles, the owners wrote in their closure email. Thanks from the bottom of our hearts to those who have supported us through thick and thin. We appreciate you, and we wish you all the best. A Trip to Denver's Dump inspired a book about humanity's stuff by Kevin Beady. Back in 2018, archaeologist Chip Colwell joined us on a trip to the Denver-Arapaho disposal site, the city's dump, where we stood atop a mountain of trash, and waxed poetic about all the stuff we throw away. Landfills are the archaeology of us, he said from the garbage peak. It's our future history. When we met him, Colwell was the Denver Museum of Nature and Science's curator of anthropology. He later left the institution to pour his energy into Sapiens, a digital magazine of anthropology he founded in 2016. As someone who studies objects that people have left behind, He's been thinking about deeper questions related to this place. The wasteland of discarded wood, paper, couches, and tires hinted at deeper questions he couldn't ignore. So he started work on a book, a story about our relationship to our beloved objects that spans our entire existence. For me, the seed of it was this mystery of how we, as a species, started out about four million years ago needing nothing at all to survive, he said. And yet, here we are, four million years later, just engulfed in things. The clothes we wear, or the houses we live in, or the planes we fly in. Glasses, computers, cell phones, sporting equipment. All of it is what makes us human today. So what explains that four million year transformation of going from nothing to everything? He finished the book, and next month, the fruit of his labor will be available to buy and then placed on a shelf with all the other books in your collection. It's called So Much Stuff, How Humans Discovered Tools, Invented Meaning, and Made More of Everything. Colwell traveled the world to dig into this epic tale. He went to Ethiopia, where he learned about, and got to hold, some some of humanity's first tools, split rocks transformed into axes. This marked the first of three major leaps that we made as we progressed from needing nothing to everything. Tools gave us more means to survive, then shaped us in their image. As we became more and more dependent on things, our bodies themselves began to change, Colwell told us. If you have knives to be able to cut up meat or touch tubers, then you don't need sharp, robust teeth. So there's this fascinating symbiosis between tools and our bodies the tools begin to shift our own evolution. From there, humanity assigned value to objects, invented things like religion, art, and money, Colwell's second major leap, then began to mass-produce things and value quantity above all else. In so much stuff, Colwell takes readers from that genesis in Eastern Africa to Hong Kong, New Zealand, Europe, and, excitingly, to Denver's Dump. It's probably no surprise that he found stuff everywhere he went. This is a deeply human phenomenon. No matter where humans live, no matter what condition, everyone, every human needs things to survive, he said. While readers will mostly learn how we got here, Colwell said there was no way to avoid some existential questions. The three leaps that underpin his theory of stuff weren't necessarily all positive. I can't help but ask, but what now? Because we know our world is drowning in trash. We know our oceans are overflowing with plastic. You can't help but then ask the question, what does all this mean? And is this really for the best? He said, it's unavoidable. The environmental crisis is, in essence, a crisis of stuff. It's because of our endless consumption of the world's materials that has led us to this moment. While the archaeologist dips into economic theory, sociology, art history, and philosophy, he said his saga should be accessible to anyone who's interested in human history. It was published by the University of Chicago Press, so it did benefit from a peer review, but Colwell said he kept it jargon-free. So much stuff hits booksellers on November 9th. We're proud Denver's garbage played a role in its inception. The following articles are from Westward. Overland becomes latest Denver neighborhood to push back on homeless micro-community, by Manito L. Kelty. Yet another Denver neighborhood is opposing a micro-community planned for its area. This time it's Overland, where more than 300 homeless individuals are slated to move into a micro-community at 2301 Santa Fe Drive, which will be sandwiched between homes and the freeway. Residents say they're terrified over the prospect of having such a large collection of homeless people move in at once. The micro-community will host 155 units, with availability for up to two people each, according to Denver City records. Private facilities such as these, which utilize tiny homes and pallet shelters, are central to Mayor Mike Johnston's House 1000 plan to get 1,000 residents off the streets and into housing by the end of the year. Johnson expects to start moving individuals into planned microcommunities in the coming weeks. The mayor has gotten slapped with repeated criticism in recent weeks by people who feel his House 1000 plan is being carried out with little consideration for the public. Residents in the Golden Triangle have already aired their grievances, both to Johnston's face and behind closed doors, while others in the Holly Hills area have called for the formation of a registered neighborhood organization to oppose a micro-community planned for 5500 East Yale Avenue. Concerns about the size of the micro-community and how the other sites are being spread across the city have been at the top of the complaint list for most of the homeowners that Helene Orr represents as president of the Neighbors of Overland North and r she says. This particular site is huge, Orr tells Westward. It's a big problem. It's a tough issue. And for it to be successful, there has to be some neighborhood buy-in. And Johnston is really getting off on a bad foot. Although Orr only represents the Overland neighborhood north of Evans Avenue, she says homeowners who live to the south have also voted to oppose the micro-community going up. It's pretty fair to say that the majority of people in the neighborhood are not in favor of it as it stands now, Orr says. It seems like a big burden for us to take on, adds Heather Barnes, an Overland resident. Why place that burden here of that scale when we already have another one in District 7? Right now, District 7 is slated to host a site at 950 Alameda Avenue. Mayor Johnston has claimed that each city council district would host a micro-community, but none have been publicly announced for Districts 1, 2, or 5. In a letter to the mayor last week, Orr pointed out how the distribution of sites is not equitable by any stretch because there are no microcommunity sites planned so far for the very wealthy neighborhoods of Denver, Cherry Creek, Country Club, Belcaro, Bonnie Bray, Wash Park, Platte Park. Orr added, If you want neighborhoods to accept and support these sites, we need to see that no neighborhoods are exempt from participating in the solution. Until then, expect to be met with resistance. City officials have not said what the capacity of the other microcommunity sites will be. A spokesperson for the Department of Housing Stability tells Westward that the city is still holding a community information meeting for each proposed microcommunity prior to any occupation of the site. The feedback and other assessments will help inform how many units each site can accommodate," the Rep said. A community information meeting at, about the Overland site was held on Thursday, September 28. That was when Barnes and other neighbors found out about the size of the incoming micro-community and that there was overwhelming concern," she says. Orr recalls how the mayor and his staff were not well received on account of all of the frustrations felt by neighbors. I understand it's a tough and sensitive issue all around, she says. We do want to help as a community, but we, like other communities that they want to bring this to, are concerned. We have some fears, and I'm not sure that those were really addressed to the level that we would like to see. Orr says that Johnston was long on assurances, short on details at the meeting. A bit of the usual, she blasts. She was also surprised that the city went from saying it would house 50 to 100 people at each site, and then we went to this meeting and all of a sudden we look at the map and it's 155 units. Johnston's team rolled out a pretty general PowerPoint presentation that mostly answered what a microcommunity is, but didn't go into more detail about the specifics, Barnes says. The 300-plus capacity of the Overland micro-community is a little concerning, she tells Westward, noting how the meeting with Johnston really didn't help things. There was some frustration because we felt like that was information we already knew and not a lot of new information coming out, Barnes remembers. We're nervous that we would kind of be potentially the first to have something of this scale. Over the past few months... The mayor has been trying to reassure the public that micro-communities are safe. That's kind of the main concern, Barnes says. There was very little detail about any kind of vetting of individuals at the micro-community. Like the Golden Triangle, the low barrier is a concern. There are no background checks that are going to be done on the micro-community residents. If they are coming to our neighborhood and they are going to be close to neighbors and in the community, those things are a little worrying to us. At the September 28th meeting, Johnston told Overland residents that the current system in the city is not working to keep people safe, and that micro-communities would have rules to keep residents in check. They have a chance to be in a housing sit- locations that have high degrees of accountability, have high degrees of security and supervision, and have rules, Johnston said. You have to comply by those rules, or you can get removed, or you can get re- arrested. When defending microcommunities, Johnston often cites data showing that they are literally one-thousandth of the safety risk to the community of what the current situation is, as he did during a September 12th press conference. Overland is an official neighborhood in District 7 and has multiple RNOs. It's represented by Councilwoman Flora Alvudrez, whom Barnes credits for being very willing to meet with neighbors and try to represent our voices. But she also admits that Alvidrez hasn't been able to provide many details about when the micro-community will open and why their neighborhood was selected to host it. Alvidrez did not respond to requests for comment this week. Barnes says that she and other neighbors met with the councilwoman on Tuesday, October 3rd. The property where the Overland micro-community will be placed is owned by the Colorado Department of Transportation. A CDOT spokesperson tells Westward that they have no information on how much the city is paying to use the land, why their property was chosen, or when it will open as a micro-community. Like residents from the Holly Hills area and the Golden Triangle, neighbors in Overland are upset that Johnston didn't inform them about his plans ahead of time. There were a lot of people who were finding out as it was happening, Barnes says. We wish the communication there would have been a little bit better and more encompassing of the entire neighborhood. While Barnes and Orr both like and appreciate that the mayor is trying to solve the homelessness issue in the city, Orr says they feel like they've not been told the truth entirely by Johnston. Now we're forced, in a way, to be in this opposing mode, which isn't necessarily where we want to be, Orr says. I'm not sure that this is a very well-thought-out plan. Barnes concludes, At the end of the day, I think people want this to be a good thing for the communities and for Denver. It's just the concerns. I don't think they've been addressed sufficiently. DIA acknowledges travel woes. Adjusts for the future. By Katie Cheshire. As recently as a year and a half ago, Denver International Airport thought it would reach 100 million annual passengers by 2032. It's now realized those numbers aren't ferry dust. In fact, they're coming much sooner than that. According to Phil Washington, CEO of DIA, the airport now projects it will hit 100 million annual visitors by 2027, and it's adjusting its future plans based on the new numbers. Operation 2045, as it's been dubbed, will attempt to prepare the airport for 120 million or more passengers annually Over the next two decades, as DIA gets ready to mark its 50th anniversary in 2045, the airport has already seen 36.5 million passengers in 2023 and expects to see 78 million by the time the year is over, after initially planning for around 73 or 74 million. I think it has surprised everybody, Washington said, of the increased air travel numbers at an October 4th press conference. There was a time when we could pick the rush hours for this airport. Now, it's always rush hour. By 2045, the plan is for the airport to add four new concourses directly attached to the main terminal for larger processing and gate capacity. We're preparing for the immediate time frame with security improvements and things like that, but we're also looking out to 2045 as well, Washington explained. It is our responsibility as infrastructure professionals to prepare for the next generation of passengers that come through here. But with talk of expansion and improvements comes the dread of even more construction, which passengers have endured for years as DIA works to renovate its Great Hall, C Terminal, and security systems. When asked if the new plan would lead to endless construction, Washington answered, I don't think so. The terminal impacts people the most, and the Great Hall, it's tough constructing something that people are still walking through. According to Washington, the Great Hall project is set to wrap up ahead of schedule, starting with the new West security checkpoint, which will have a soft opening in January of 2024 before permanently opening on February 6th. We have TSA training on that equipment to run it like a Ferrari, he promised, Currently, the TSA equipment at DIA gets about 150 people through security per lane per hour. That will increase to 250 with the new technology at the West Security Checkpoint, according to Washington. Dave Laporte, Deputy Chief Operating Officer at the airport, noted that multiple people will be able to take off their shoes and put their luggage in bins at each lane of the new checkpoint. Additionally, New technology will allow for remote viewing of scanned luggage, leading to more screeners than lanes. TSA's updated identity auth- authentication software will also use facial recognition, Laporte said, which should speed things up for everyone. Future imp- improvements that will potentially automate luggage screening are planned as well, which will al- help eliminate the need for a TSA agent to examine each piece of luggage and free agents up to only deal with problem luggage or items that software can't determine or process as flyable. The new checkpoint will have 17 lanes and be evaluated for a few weeks starting February 6, 2024, at which time the North Security Checkpoint will close for renovation. That location will eventually reopen as a new East Security Checkpoint. Washington expects that work to take 18 to 24 months from start to finish. It stands to reason that we will have worked out the kinks, he said Wednesday, noting how the project is essentially the same as the completed West security updates. Other airports already have many more screening areas, according to Washington, but Denver wasn't designed that way, making renovations and security, in general, much trickier. It's like renovating your house while you're still living in it, Washington said, because we cannot close this airport, obviously. One potential issue that could be contributing to longer wait times at security, according to the CEO, is that the authorized headcount for TSA agents at the airport is smaller than what it was in 2019. The number sat just over 1,100 that year, and is now at 941. Washington said Wednesday that he raised the issue to TSA Administrator Dave Pekoski, What we talked to the administrator about was, how can that be, Washington remembered. The question that I posed to the administrator was, what is going on with your model? According to Washington, there are plans for Pekoski to meet with the largest 20 airports in the United States and discuss agent allocations for each one. Washington acknowledges that security wait times are at the top of people's minds. The wait times are very, very important, he assured visitors. Another recent issue at the airport has been train breakdowns, which have caused nightmarish hubbubs numerous times over the past year for passengers trying to go from security to their gates. One of the big vulnerabilities for this airport is the train, Washington said. It's operational 99.5% of the time, is what my operation folks tell me. But when it goes down, it's chaos. DIA is working to fix the problem by ordering new cars for the trains, according to Washington, which will come in next year. Solving air conditioning issues that have been reported on existing cars is also a top priority, along with adding additional doors to train platforms to help with the capacity problems. We see light at the end of the proverbial train tunnel, Washington quipped. For Operation 2045, DIA is attempting to tackle the train problem head-on by planning to attach the four new concourses directly to the security security area and Great Hall so that they they can be accessed merely by walking rather than, than by train. The goal is to add the concourses in phases, starting with adding two at the northern end of the airport and then adding two to the south. When all is said and done, DIA estimates there will be a total of 100 new gates added. We will extend the tents to the airport office building and have a processing center where airlines can have ticket counters, where we can have additional security areas, Washington said Wednesday. Through that processing center, people can walk to their gates. Washington predicts that airlines will be quick to fill those new spots, considering the 39 gates completed in November of 2022 were all spoken for before, long before they were ready for operation, and there's already competition for the last new gates DIA can add, 11 in Terminal C. We haven't even started designing them yet, and the airlines have already called dibs, Washington said. DIA won't leave the current concourses neglected, according to officials, and it's also made plans for a consolidated rental car facility with automated transportation to and from the airport. Management is addressing cars in other ways, too, by working with the Denver Police Department to curb car theft. Washington said that nearly 400 vehicles have been stolen from DIA lots this year. One stolen car here is one car too many, he asserted. We want to acknowledge how much hardship that is for people who travel and come back and their car is gone. We fully acknowledge that. We are doing all we can to harden our parking areas and our parking lots. To do so, DIA will install 15 new high-activity location observation, halo, cameras by Thanksgiving. It's also making sure that people who don't need to be at the airport aren't coming there at night. DIA policy states that anyone who doesn't have an official airport business, ticketed passengers, employees, Weston hotel guests, or those waiting for a passenger for, on a flight in or out within four hours, isn't allowed on the premises between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. While the rules have always been DIA's policy, they managed to grab the attention of several people this week after Denver City Council member Chantel Lewis posted about it on social media. Just curious as why one would need to show their boarding pass when arriving on the RTD A-line in order to access the airport, she tweeted on Tuesday, October 2nd. I never seen this when parking or taking a shared ride. Anyone experience this? Washington said Wednesday, it is not DIA policy to have officers check boarding passes, but everything else that's required is standard procedure at other airports and has existed for years. It's always been around, he said. A DIA spokesperson told Westward that the policy is intended to make sure the only people at the airport during these later hours Are those who actually need to be there? Washington admitted that it's currently rough to be at DIA because of the ongoing construction, but he reaffirmed the need for the work, adding that his belief is it's the best course of action for the future of Denver's airport. We ask that the public bear with us as we retrofit this airport, he said. I've been around a lot of construction sites. This is a construction site, this airport. I mean, We are building and we're retrofitting, but the alternative is to do nothing and have people stacked up in this airport with outdated facilities. Mine Reclamation Project at Trinidad Lake State Park wins national award by Katie Cheshire. The Colorado Division of Reclamation Mining and Safety's inactive mine reclamation program just won a national award for its work in Los Animas County where it rehabilitated the abandoned West Sopris mine near the entrance of Trinidad Lake State Park. It edged out projects from other western states to earn the honor from the Office of Surface Mining, Reclamation and Enforcement, presented September 25th at the annual National Association of Abandoned Mine Land Programs Conference. It's a big honor to be recognized nationally like this, said Rachel Nicholas, project manager for the West Sopris Coal Refuse Project, is just a really good way to share our work and get the word out there about what we do. It's very exciting. At the conference, Nicholas discussed how the Colorado team transformed what was seven acres of coal refuse into soil that can support vegetation. The project also stabilized the refuse, preventing contaminating sediment from draining into Trinidad Lake. The work was completed in 2021, 80 years after the mine's 1940 closing. It had opened in 1887, when no regulations existed regarding where to dispose of the waste from mines. The 180,000 cubic yards of coal waste was left in a natural drainage area. There was no permitting required, and nobody really left to take care of it, Nicholas says. That's where our program comes in to address these historic legacy sites. The problem in Trinidad was magnified in the 1970s when the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers built flood control dams along the Purgatory River, forming what would later become Trinidad Lake State Park. As coal sedimentation drained into the lake over the years, the Corps had to dredge the lake. To fix the environmental degradation, Nicholas and her team installed rock-lined channels to direct runoff and stormwater away from the pile of waste, as well as reduce erosion of the waste into the surrounding environment. They also worked to blend the remaining waste, huge black piles previously visible to park patrons, into the natural habitat, using a special technique that rehabilitated the contaminated soil. We're in southern Colorado, and it's a semi-arid climate. Nicholas says, there's not a lot of topsoil. There's not a lot of vegetation to begin with. There was really nowhere for us to borrow topsoil to cap this material to allow vegetation to grow. And it would be a huge cost to import enough topsoil. Rather than take on the cost of bringing in topsoil, scientists helped find a way to change the acidity of the coal waste to allow for vegetation to grow. We took that recipe that the lab came up with and created this cocktail, if you will, of amendments to add to the coal base, Nicholas explains. By adding 14,000 pounds of limestone and 70,000 pounds of neutral lime, a fast-acting soil neutralizer, into the top 12 inches of coal soil, the team made seven acres of the project viable for growth again. Then they seeded the area with native plants, mainly grass. We really changed the composition of the coal waste entirely, Nicholas says. That was a really effective, cost-saving way to do this revegetation instead of bringing in topsoil. After the reseeding, the state worked with the Colorado Youth Corps Association to plant 1,500 saplings in the area, mainly of juniper and ponderosa pine. The total project cost $980,000. Nicholas shared information on the soil transformation technique at the National Association of Abandoned Mine Land Programs Conference in hopes that it could help with similar struggles in other states as well as Colorado. Messes such as this are a priority for Colorado's inactive mine reclamation program, which addresses problems with mines across Colorado from coal to gold and silver. Challenges dealing with environmental degradation rank just below handling safety hazards that could cause injury or death if people fell or wandered into open, abandoned mines. According to Nicholas, Werfano and Las Animas counties in the southern portion of the state face about 25 challenges similar to those tackled by the West Sopris Coal Refuse Project. While the project will benefit both the wildlife in the area and visitors to the lake, Nicholas says it also shows the state's commitment to the Los Animas community. The less sedimentation, the more water the lake can hold, the more activities the citizens can enjoy on the water, she says. We really try to do as much as we can down there with our funding. The eyesore of the coal waste that was left behind, blending that in and getting it back to where it was was before the coal mining is a good impact. Bacon Bits National Breast Cancer Awareness Benefit Concert Returns for a Second Year by Aubrey Cox. Denver producer Andrew Baker, who performs under the moniker Bacon Bits, is ready for round two of the National Breast Cancer Awareness Month Benefit Concert, which he launched last year and which will have its second iteration on Saturday, October 7th at Table Table Public House. The accomplishment is bittersweet for Baker, who lost his mother, Gail, to breast cancer. She was diagnosed in May of 2014, Baker says. She had a a five-and-a-half-year battle, but she passed in February of 2020. As he was fooling around with music in high school and college, Baker recalls that his mother was always a stalwart supporter of his artistry. However, he only began to perform consistently in April last year. That's always been my biggest regret, he says, that she never had the chance, and she never will be able to see me play live in terms of where I am now. To honor her memory, Baker organized last year's Benefit Concert at the Mercury Cafe and was pleasantly surprised at its success, despite struggles with marketing and promotion. We still had a fairly decent turnout for the first year, Baker says. The event raised more than $550 in ticket sales, and donations increased the net gain to over $1,000. That was honestly a stretch goal for me, he admits, so to be able to reach that in the first year was awesome. This year, Baker wants to push it even further. He thinks that at Table Public House, where he has frequently performed in the past year, and with the support of fellow musicians and business partners, his goal of reaching 200 ticket sales is well within reach. All proceeds from the event, including tickets and donations, will go to the National Breast Cancer Foundation. Tickets to the event are priced on Eventbrite at $8 for children and $12 for adults, and donations are always accepted over Venmo. Every single cent of the ticket prices that we earn is going to the donation, and in terms of the Eventbrite fees, we're going to go ahead and cover that on our side, says Baker. Bacon Bits will have a set at the concert, including performances from Parabolic Murmur, The Other Eric, and Tyler Brooks. Tyler has that camp voice, that golden voice of an angel, Baker says. The Other Eric has a John Legend kind of feel to him, very soulful. And Parabolic Murmur uses guitar with a lot of different kind of echoey sounds, and that very dreamy type of sound. The concert is personal for most of the other musicians as well. Brooks lost his mother to pancreatic cancer in 2018, and Colin Corrin, who performs as Parabolic Murmur, has a brother who is diagnosed with leukemia at age 25. Seeing the struggle and the suffering that you go through with chemo and the various treatments for cancer in a lot of ways has increased the sense of sympathy and hopefully empathy for people who are suffering from breast cancer in particular, which is a very, very potent and challenging type of cancer to deal with, says Corin. It does mean a lot to me to be able to help out, because I fully understand where Baker is coming from and why he wants to put this on, adds Brooks, who also played at last year's show. Baker is supported by his father as well, from whom he inherits his musicianship, he actually taught me my first three chords on guitar, the classic GCD, when I was eight years old, he says. Nowadays, he takes inspiration from soft folk artists such as Big Thief, Hovdi, and Christian Lee Hudson. Having released several singles over the summer, Baker plans to release his first full-length album, Valley of the Doe Queen, this November. A mix of his earlier EDM influences and more recent indie folk tendencies will define the album, he says. I tend to gravitate more toward a singer-songwriter. That's my bread and butter. But there's still a part of me that likes an electronic bit, he explains. As his own following grows, Baker hopes to expand the reach of the NBCAM Benefit concert in future years. Five, ten years down the road... He plans to continue honoring his mother and others who have battled with breast cancer each October, supporting different charities working to help those individuals and find a cure. There's a lot of regret that crops up, Baker says. A lot of sadness and thinking about how much I miss her. But I'm also really proud of this event and excited because it's in her honor. It's my way of saying thanks for everything you've done and using my music to say thank you. Because without her... I don't think I would have been in this spot today. NBCAM Benefit Concert one to seven PM Saturday, october seventh, table public house twenty one ninety South Platte River Drive. Tickets are eight dollars to twelve dollars. Donations are accepted on Venmo. Tool leaves us Rosetta Stoned after explosive Loveland concert by Emily Ferguson. Hello Denver. Oh, wait, we can't say that. Denver area, I guess. We'll go with Colorado. Hello, Colorado. That's how Tool frontman Maynard James Keenan greeted the audience at the October 3rd concert at Blue Arena, the former Budweiser Event Center in Loveland. The seminal prog rock band sold out the 7200 capacity venue, which is no surprise. Tool has a big following in Denver and regularly packs its venues, including such places as Ball Arena. That's why it's bizarre that you can still meet people who have no clue what Tool is. And as anyone who knows a Tool fan can attest, it is that fan's duty to detail every reason why Tool is the best, and why you haven't lived until you've seen the band in all its glory. As vexing as those fans can be, they have a solid point. It's hard to resist urging others to see the band and be open to welcoming Keenan Adam Jones guitar, Danny Carey drums, and Justin Chancellor bass into their lives. There's a lot to be said of Tool's musicianship. Thousands of words could be shared on the musicians' technical skills and compositional prowess alone. But if you're new to Tool, curious about the band, or haven't seen it live, here are five takeaways from Tool's october third concert. The crowd was wholesome. Back when I reluctantly went to Taylor Swift's Eras concert, I was blown away by how wholesome the crowd was. And while Tool doesn't attract saccharine girls in puffy pink dresses and glitter, this crowd was is just as fine a feather. A lot of fucking dudes here, huh? A friend texted me during set break. Indeed, prog rock Gen Xers, pretty much all men, all smiles, and all high fives, were ambling throughout the center, a merch line snaked around the venue. But unlike at other concerts that tend to attract a male-dominated audience, there were no salacious remarks or reckless behavior, no one was getting too drunk, and by the end of the show, beer wasn't spilled over every inch of the floor. Tool doesn't come by too often. So this was an event moment fans had been anticipating since the 2022 Ball Arena show. Their focus was on one thing, enjoying the music. A no-cell-phone policy is key to that. Remember when concerts were filled with people who weren't documenting moments for social media but were actually living in the present? If you were born after 1995, probably not. But you get the experience at tool shows. Tool is extremely strict about its no-cell-phone policy, and we are the better for it. Why do people take a concert video on their phone anyway? They're likely never going to watch it again, and I hate to break it to them, but the people they're sharing it to on Instagram stories couldn't care less and will click over it. At around 10.30 p.m., 30 minutes before the show was over, a security guard said that more than two dozen people had been kicked out for using their cell phones, and we'd seen that throughout the show. Some folks only had their phone up for a couple of seconds before they were whisked away. Some received a warning if they proved they deleted their videos or images, but second offenders weren't given another chance. Too bad for them, because at the end, Keenan allowed audiences to whip out their phones to record the final song, Invincible. Let's talk about the light show. Tool may not be big on allowing tech such as cell phones, but the band has no problem embracing the out of this world light effects available today. The band also enforces its privacy that way. None of its members do interviews or speak about the band publicly in an effort to guide the audience's attention to the music rather than the performers. Tool lighting tech Mark Jr. Jacobson ensures that the lights, lasers, and screen images are completely in sync with each change of note, making the concert an almost immersive experience as audiences are pulled deeper into the music and its messaging. And the images put on the screen are unforgettable. A volcano pouring lava morphs into an eye of Sauron before blending into a new landscape. Heads pour from heads like fractals. An eyeball twitches its iris over the audience, Tongues spill from gaping mouths in an intoxicating loop. Alien-like bodies twist and turn. It was like the best spooky movie you've ever seen, set to the best soundtrack imaginable. The set list was stellar. It's hard to make a bad set list when you get to choose from a prolific well of excellent, heavy songs with heavenly vocals. From its start with Fear Inoculum, the classic opener, to its finale, the show was filled with favorites, including Jombie, Stink Fist, and The Pot, as well as tracks from newer albums, such as Culling Voices and NUMA. One of the highlights came in the first set, when Keenan announced that the band would play a song it hadn't in years. He brought out a big stack of pages, which he said contained all Tool songs, and rested it on a music stand. What followed was a captivating performance of Rosetta Stoned. It was the first time the band had played the song with live vocals since 2009. Aftermath Once the band completed playing Invincible, the crowd erupted in cheers and then stood there. While some people started shuffling toward the doors, many seemed glued to the position they'd held throughout the show. The Tool spell was palpable Eyes were wide, not from drugs, but from pure exhilaration and wonderment. Seriously, what just happened? One fan asked a neighbor. The neighbor laughed and replied, Tool happened. Little Carmen's Reopens on Penn After More Than Three Years by Molly Martin Spaghetti and Meatball Sandwiches are back at 84 South Pennsylvania Avenue. We closed for business that fateful day in March 2020 and we just haven't been able to get back on our feet enough to get back open until now, says Brad Ritter, owner of Little Carmen's, the fast casual sister restaurant of old school Italian favorite Carmen's on Penn and the newer Carmen's at McGregor Square. The business first debuted in 2013, offering a more affordable and portable way to enjoy Carmen's Italian classics for lunch. But the pandemic forced Little Carmen's to go on pause. We finally had enough manpower and willpower to reopen it, Ritter notes. Little Carmen's is located at 84 Pennsylvania Avenue and is open from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Tuesday through Sunday. For more information, visit little.carmenscolorado.com. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling three zero three seven eight six seven 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 seven.